Hour number two of the People's Show. It's Dan Rejo and Marcus Fitzgerald with producer Eddie Gregory with you here in the Kid Tech studio. Kid Tech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Um, I knew this text was coming, Marcus, after we briefly mentioned the Toronto Blue Jays. Oh, okay. All right. With uh, Don Taylor. Toronto Blue Jays, not Vancouver Blue Jays. Yeah, people really, um, they really wear that. <laughs> and I get it. I trust, like, li- listen, I grew up in Port Coquitlam. I understand. I get it. I, I get it. I'm with you. I get it. But Don probably had a pretty good point where it's like, you know what? He's right. If the Jays go on a playoff front, people are going to tune in. They just are. They just are. Uh, and then there's a text from Corbett who asks, who do you think will catch for Hicks? Um, I mean, Hicks is probably going to be either the setup man or, I guess, closer until Jordan Romano. For now, anyway. This is Romano insurance. Whoever's catching in the moment is going to catch Jordan Hicks. Whoever's behind home plate. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Let's go with that. (laughs) Whoever's behind home plate. Who's available? Do we have a warm body? Yeah. It's uh, not not so much like a starter who you might want Danny Jansen catching for Alec Manoa, which is something I know the Jays were were trying to get done before – you know, Danny Jansen got hurt yet again. Is but... Alec Manoa going to get it back? I don't think so. <laughs> pretty pretty, uh, pretty unsettling thing he had to go through the other day. Yeah. Hitting that guy, too. Uh, like that, that'll, that'll stay with you. He's got bit. no control, and he doesn't have an out pitch right now. It's kind of hard to be a pitcher when, when you have those two things working against you. Mm-hmm. But we'll get Blue Jays talking a little bit later on in the program and uh, more Major League Baseball-focused trade deadline discussions as well coming up a little bit later on but uh to continue with the biggest story of the day also the most disappointing story of the day the canadian women's national team knocked out of world cup contention with a 4-0 loss to australia earlier joining us now to talk about that ben steiner joins us uh thanks for this ben it's uh I mean, uh, this morning was uh, nothing short of a disaster. I think that might even uh, be a bit of an understatement for the way that game went. Hey, guys. Hope you're all doing well. And, yeah, I mean, this morning was was rough. I mean, for anybody who woke up that early, especially in Vancouver, to watch that match, I mean, it wasn't worth waking up for. And if you went back to sleep, you were hoping that it was just a nightmare and you woke up and the game was tomorrow because that was a rough match for Canada and kind of everything that could go wrong did go wrong for that team, especially in a match where all they needed was a draw and they got hammered for nothing. So where do we start, Ben? What's at the top of the list after what you saw this morning? Everything, in a sense, because you take a look at the lineup that, that Bev Priestman rolled out, and I guess you can start on the, on the touchline. And Bev Priestman, it wasn't a successful World Cup. She was outcoached yeah. uh, at this World Cup. I don't think that's unfair to say. Um, and she just didn't look like she was ready for the, the challenge of a World Cup. Yes, there were, there were so many issues going into this with the, the Federation, the negotiations going on as well, and the distraction that that po- posed to the, the Canadian women's national team players. But at the end of the day, they didn't play well. They didn't look as though a team that plays at the level, which they all do, they all play at a elite level, uh, whether that's in the end of OSL or abroad, and you, you look at the, the players and the clubs where they're at, they, they play better than this most of the time. Um, but they looked a, a little bit lost when it came to that game. There was a lot of long balls, a lot of unsuccessful crosses. There was a bit of misconnection in the midfield. Jesse Fleming, of course, missed that first game. And if she was in that first game and she scores that penalty, maybe we're not having this conversation today and we're looking ahead to the round 16. But she comes back into the lineup, doesn't really fit with Julia Grosso. Quinn's playing fantastic, but the, even they were struggling to connect to move the ball off the pitch. So overall, there was just misconnection everywhere on the pitch, and I think that in a way comes down to Bev Priestman. Um, and there's a real question of whether she can continue in, the, in this role. Canada looks ahead to Olympic qualifying th- this September in a two-game playoff with Jamaica, And they're the reigning Olympic champions. They should qualify for Paris next summer. But with the way they played today, with the way they've shown recently, uh, and especially everything that's sort of surrounding this team, um, there's no guarantee that they can get past Jamaica. 
can't score goals, and uh, it's kind of hard to uh, win football matches when you can't score goals, and that's been a problem for this women's team for a while now. You know, they managed their way through uh, the the gold medal in Tokyo, but you know they they won some penalties. They had some success with their defensively stout style, and it worked out in the long run for them. But it always felt like the chickens were going to come home to roost on their inability to score goals. And it happened at this tournament. The the thing that I really struggle with here, Ben, and I, I had the same sort of question marks on the men's side, because there's been fair critiques to have of John Herdman in their recent matches and their recent lack of success. But how do you properly assess and criticize what's going on at you know the field level, the pitch level, when there's always the excuse of, well, Canada soccer is an abject disaster and it affects everything that we do, and it's a valid excuse. You know, like you can't get away from the very valid excuse of how poor the organization is, how poor the federation is, and how the federation is not setting up our national teams for success. So I have a hard time sort of assessing what's happening at pitch level versus. You know, the very real factors of the problems with the Federation and how it's affecting the respective national teams. Yeah, it's it's an excuse and it's not an excuse at the same time because there's so many factors that go into the on-field performance, uh, whether that's the uh, amount of training, the amount of friendlies, the amount of camps that you get, uh, the just treatment of the players in general, and all of that can come back to the Federation. Um, and then you can take a look at just sort of the, the preparation and the ability that these players have to play to their maximum levels with the Canadian squad. And that's not necessarily there, but that's on them as much as it is the Federation, right? So it's a whole cocktail of a mess with Canadian soccer. And there's so many similarities to the, the men's team as well, because you can look at the men's team and what are we talking about there? It's Alfonso Davies not playing in a position that's defined and not getting the maximum out of him. He's spending his time lost with the Canadian team. And you you look at the, the Canadian women's team, and it's a very similar story. Where does Christine Sinclair play? Does she even play? How do you best get the best out of Quinn? So it's tough to blame it necessarily on one thing because it's just such a mix. And I think that's where some things can kind of get missed because it's very easy to say, oh, Canada doesn't have a domestic league. Well, that's changing in 2025 with Project 8, the Whitecaps joining that. But you can also point fingers at the Federation, the players. It all comes together, and when everything goes wrong, we see what we saw this morning. The the defense is still good. There's no doubt about that. They're still some of the best defenders in the world. But should Kadishu Buchanan have played today, given her fitness? Probably not. Um, And so it's, it's just a everything comes together and when it all comes together it looks like the she believes cup where they look distracted they looked terrible to be honest or today where they lay a complete egg at the world cup who is going to be a part of the next wave ben because a lot was made of christine sinclair you could put sophie schmidt on that list but you know we're 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 going to be back here again you know three four years from now with olympics world cup and stuff There, there has to be that next generation who is going to be at the forefront of that in your mind well, we, we saw a bit of it today in the last 15 minutes or so, and coming onto the pitch was Olivia Smith, who was playing in League One Canada, the uh, top amateur division and currently the top division of, of women's soccer in Canada in a country without a league. But she was playing in that league last year, and she's recently signed with Sporting Portugal over uh, in Portugal, and she'll be playing pro at 18, which is not something that's necessarily seen a lot for North American women's players. A lot of the time, you do go the college route and do your entire four years, five years there. Um, And she'll be able to test herself. And so that's an exciting talent coming up on the attacking side of things. And then you can look a little bit further down the road as well. When you look at Project 8, the new Women's Professional League coming into play in 2025, led by former national team player Diana Matheson. And there's players who are playing at a level that will get them into that league and probably overseas as well. And my mind goes to two players who have actually been with the Whitecaps Academy and Geneva Hernandez-Gray, who's been fantastic with the Whitecaps League 1 BC teams, uh, led by Katie Collar, and they're playing a final at BC Place, uh, as well as Claire Logan, a centre-back on that team. Both of them have had opportunities to to play with Canada at the youth levels, and while the youth levels have been hamstrung by similar problems with no camps and 
inability to get on the same page ahead of major competitions. Um, those two players have, have shown well against some elite competition, both in Canada and abroad. And it's an exciting time for, for them and the, the Whitecaps Academy as well, because they're producing some players that are exciting and they'll be playing uh, for their second League One BC title this Saturday. Definitely uh, good to hear on that front, but still need uh, more professional environments. I think we can all agree on that for Canadian uh, players on the come up. But, you know, one of the big stories in this fallout is Christine Sinclair here, Ben, and, and what her future is. We saw her get choked up uh, in some of her post-game availabilities, but um, there, there's still a bit of an uncertainty around whether or not we see Christine Sinclair again for Canada. Um, what's your read of the situation and what the future is for Christine Sinclair? I think we'll see her again for Canada. Um, I don't think she's going to last another four years. I don't think she's necessarily even going to last another year should Canada make the Olympics again. But, I mean, what else can you say about, about Christine Sinclair? She's the greatest goal scorer to ever play the game of soccer uh, on the international level. 190 times she found the back of the net. Olympic champion, three-time Olympic medalist. Like, she's done everything but win a World Cup. And with the World Cup, you, you need a, a strong team, and it's just never been a, a hump that, that Canada's been able to get over. But Christine Sinclair has given absolutely everything to Canadian soccer. She's given everything to soccer in, in Burnaby and, and the BC area. and She's continuing to help grow the game in Canada with helping out with Project Date as well. So there's a lot you can be disappointed in Christine Sinclair. Yeah, she didn't score some of her volleys. Yeah, she didn't score the penalty kick at this World Cup. She's 40 years old. Not many people are playing professional sports at 40 years old. Uh, and she was still an effective player for Canada. Maybe not as effective as she used to be. Her role has certainly changed with Portland and the NWSL as well. But you just look back at her career and all the moments that she's given this country, and it's hard to think that there won't be some sort of farewell game, even though Canada is struggling to, to book friendlies. You would think there was there's going to be at least some sort of friendly or, or something that Christine Sinclair will have a, a proper send-off um, for Canada. So I don't think she's played her last game in a Canadian kit. Last game at probably a major competition, though. She said after the match that it's a wake-up call for those on, on home soil, um, seeing Canada fall out of the World Cup before the group stage and seeing the difficulties they had scoring goals and the general realization at this World Cup, a 32-team World Cup, that the rest of the world is catching up. And if not catching up, already past where Canada is. Um, you know, we, you mentioned Project 8 showing up in 2025. Um, how can, you know, Canada use this, this disappointing moment, as something to build off of and be the wake-up call that Christine Sinclair hopes for it to be? Really, the wake-up call should have come a little while ago yep. uh, when Canada started to not score goals anymore, when <laughs> Sinclair started to slow down a little bit. Um, but well, they were mentioning this after winning the gold medal. You know, it's like, well, let's hope we can start a women's league now because, you know, they knew back then that this was going to be an issue. Yeah, they knew back then it was going to be an issue. They they started talking about that after the, the Rio Olympics, even, yeah. where they, they they won the bronze medal. And, of course, London, she was, was still in form. But, I mean, it's been nearly eight years that we've been talking about Canada needs to get better goal scorers uh, and... and not have the burden on Christine Sinclair, but in terms of just getting Canada to the level that we're seeing from a country like Spain that has really sort of improved since bringing in their women's league and professionalizing that, um, Canada needs the league. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly what that league does in the, the immediate future, but when you look at the struggling teams at this World Cup, and Canada was among them, uh, no league. And that is an outstanding thing for Canada to have and to still be ranked so high, having no league. Um, but without that opportunity for players to move on from the youth level to at least playing professionally in Canada for a few years, where they can really grow into their game and then go over to Europe or go down to the NWSL, that's incredibly important. It's as important as the CPL, and I know a lot of people have a lot of judgments on the Canadian Premier League, but it's already paying off. We're already seeing players impress their be late bloomers in that league and then get over to Europe and make an impact with the national team. And so really in Canada, if you're a women's soccer player and you haven't found 
an opportunity by 18 years old, most of the time you're hanging up your boots and that has to change and that's changed in other countries. And when that changes in Canada, there will be players that find their form at 20 years old and become stars in the national league. Uh, ben Steiner, our guest, Northern football podcast. You can check him out there and at Ben Steiner, OO or zero zero on Twitter. I should say, uh, thanks for this, Ben. Appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Happy to be back. Uh, there is uh, Ben Steiner joining us here on the people's show and uh, sort of a uh, big time national referendum. It feels like, although this has kind of been going on with Canadian soccer for it's been ongoing uh, a while now, but like, I, th- I, th- I think this is the main point now. Like we're finally at this, at this, at this stage where it's like, okay, now we really have to address it now. It really started last summer view. when uh, the Canadian men's team was supposed to play here at BC place. And they were like, no, nah, you know what? We're not playing. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And uh That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Then we then we were all like, Oh, okay, so there's like some uh some mud in the water here with uh our Canadian players in the Federation. And you know, it's just so unfortunate. It's been something that if you've seen been around Canadian soccer or the Canadian Soccer Association has had these sorts of issues forever. And now that you know, you've had some level of success, there's even more of a magnifying glass on it. You can't uh, you know, hide. <laughs> yeah, you can't. There's nowhere to hide from your uh, lack of. Well, there's nowhere to hide from how poorly you are running your organization. Yeah, you can't. You can't play the cards. It's like, well, we're just Canada soccer. What do you want from us? And yeah. Now, and now the success comes, and it's like, oh, sorry, we couldn't book that friendly. And then the one that you did play, it had to be closed door. Nobody knew about it. And yep. you can't get the fan support. You can't get the people into it, even though people tuned in obviously to the world cup but at the same time that that energy wasn't there i, I didn't feel like it was in the lead up to this event in the same way that it was in in uh, the, the men's world cup the um the send-off for christine sinclair she's played now in six world cups there's only one uh, women's player that's played in more she's leaving a legend of the game this is probably going to be her last world cup we assume um maybe not you know like for a player of her stature, there should be some kind of like, uh, if we go by uh, the, the European model, there's always like a testimonial or something, you know, where they bring like stars from years past and they have like a big uh, big charity sort of event and, and a big send off for a player of that stature. And Christine Sinclair is definitely of that ilk. She's like one of the greatest athletes that this country has ever produced. Absolutely. And I don't think there's really any discussion otherwise to the conversation she leads every international player men's and women's on the goal scoring record with over 190 scored um to have this as her send-off is pretty embarrassing yeah it's a little empty and she introduced the game to a lot of people yes when she hit the scene i you know i've I wasn't really a soccer guy, Dan. I know you were, and you still are. 2012. But I know that growing up, I knew who Christine Sinclair was. She meant something to that program for a long, long time. And to see her go out like this amidst all the other stuff that was going on off the pitch, for her to know that this is probably going to be her last ride and the last World Cup game is a 4 nothing loss where they can't generate any offense. And unfortunately for her, one of the lasting images now of this tournament of Christine Sinclair is going to be missing on the penalty in the first match mm-hmm. against Nigeria. I, I know that we could say that if she scores there, maybe things are different, but she didn't. And now we're going to have that uh, image in our heads now of, of what's been just an incredible career. And honestly, with the way that, uh, uh, that the Federation is now and the way that the team is set up, this can't be on her because she's carried the flag for so many years. And now just to see her kind of be a part of this thing where even she knows it's like, man, there's only so much we can do. Uh, that's, that's kind of the upsetting thing. And that's the image that uh, I, I think a lot of us are going to take away out of, out of this world cup. And that is unfortunate because that is what we're going to remember unless there is some sort of proper send off, which there should be. It's uh it's a tough one, and hopefully, um, you know there are better days ahead for Canada soccer. Uh, I do have my doubts, but uh, those Olympic qualifiers against Jamaica—I mean, could you imagine not being at the Olympics as the reigning gold medal champion? I know. Jeez. Uh, it was um, 
you know, Italy you know, sort of got these jokes when they won the Euro and then failed to qualify for the World that's Cup. That's right. I remember those. That's, a lot of those. That's kind of what Canada soccer would be uh, would be up against should they not be able to qualify for the Olympics in that playoff against Jamaica. Uh, all right. So the um, the Whitecaps, they, they played over the weekend. They played last night. Uh, got a late victory over the L.A. Galaxy in advance to the League's Cup elimination phase. They will play Tigris in the round of 32, uh, August 4th. So this Friday at BC Place, André-Pierre Gignac, uh, the famous French star who's now played in Liga MX for a while, is uh, going to be coming up to BC Place to play in this match. Tigris, pretty good, pretty tough opponent for the Whitecaps to go up against. But, Marcus, Mm. we learned the Whitecaps do have a chance, a very slim chance, of hosting Lionel Messi in the League's Cup. Yes. It would just have to be Witchcraft the f- is required. final of the League's Cup. Now, wouldn't that be a story to sell the game in this market? Wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, I would go. Messi's first visit to Vancouver. That would be pretty, uh, that would be something else. Would Leo play on the turf? Um, and, and I know I hate it. I, every time this happens, we bring up the turf and these big stars don't show up because they don't like it. I get it. But would Leo avoid the turf? Uh, there is some speculation that he would. But if it's a final, you know, and you're what's selling, he going to do? He's going to drag. And you're selling Inter-Miami and you're selling Major League Soccer. I know it's League's Cup, but that's what you're doing. Everyone Lionel knows- Messi's dragging the worst team in MLS to this made-up <laughs> cup yeah. final and... He's not going to play? He looks like Jadavian Clowney in high school. <laughs> he looks like Zion Williamson in high school when he's out there. He's been amazing for Inter-Miami to this point. He knows why he's here. He knows he's driving Apple subscriptions. Yes. So for him to – now, obviously, 19,000 things literally have to happen and go right for this to occur. But I know in the back of my mind, yeah, Leo's probably going to avoid that turf. Oh, it's going to be messy. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. Excuse has already been dropped and tucked away just in case they yes. needed. Yeah. Like but wouldn't it, that be something? It would be something. It, it would be uh the upper deck would be open. I don't think, I think the Whitecaps have ever played Inter Miami. I know. Because there's been a pandemic in between and whatever yeah, yeah. else. Uh Inter Miami's still in their very stages. V- very uh very much in their infancy. Um but they even in their recent years haven't traveled to Vancouver. Uh those Western teams don't often play against the uh, or sorry those eastern teams don't often play against the western teams in MLS play you know uh Miami might line up against Vancouver next year we don't know if it would be in Vancouver or in Miami so that's still to be determined but if this were to happen on the small chance the white caps get to a cup final that isn't the voyageurs cup and they get to the League's Cup, and somehow Lionel Messi, Jordi Alba, and Sergio Busquets, they all channel their fountain of youth and drag this terrible Inter-Miami <laughs> team to the final of the League's Cup as well. So a lot has to happen in order for this to, to play out. But do you open the upper bowl for Messi at, uh, at BC Place? I think you would. Now, obviously, it would be, it would be based on... Uh demand but i think the demand would be there even just to see messi run through the middle of the field make a couple <laughs> nice through balls hey i but i saw it happen i yes. saw him live i saw the goat because how often is a guy like leo messi gonna play here i don't think uh, we're not gonna see him come world cup time we know that so this is the thing people like just don't even care like messi is like such a godly figure amongst soccer fans is like i don't even know who's, who's playing inter miami you know it would be like uh I don't know. It'd be similar to like uh, Barry Bonds playing a, a Vancouver Canadiens game or something. Like that. It's like <laughs> yeah, I yeah. don't care. I'm watching Barry Bonds. Yeah, like, that's what, right. What difference does it make to me? That's right. Or or a 48 year old LeBron James suiting up with the Vancouver Bandits <laughs> of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. That's that's kind of what this feels like. But at the same time, I'm interested. Yes, I am. I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll fire up the Apple. Like, I, and I get it. That's why Leo's here. I get it. I understand. But I'm going to fire it up. I'm in. Sure. Why not? Uh, I would go. Yeah. We'll we'll see. I, they didn't even open up the upper bowl for their last playoff game at BC Place, which was against Seattle, too. So, hmm. Well, I don't Just know. Just get it done and take your chances. <laughs> 
One thing I know about Vancouver, it has excellent uh, event town vibes. Yes. So if Messi showed up, I, I, I think you would get the casuals to come out. You really uh, would. Dan, the watch guy, uh, he won't play anywhere on turf. It just won't happen. Uh <laughs> I, we know that, okay, but we're just we're just thinking about uh, this just text. About. Caps aren't organized enough to open up the upper bowl. I don't know. I feel like if the Whitecaps see a, a, a money making opportunity, they won't miss out on it. If if we are if we had the conspiracy board up and we're looking at it, I'm sure the Whitecaps are looking up at it as well. It's funny. Uh, there there was a, an article on the Athletic about MLS like getting rid of some of its salary structures and. Uh, restraints on teams, uh, you know, that want to go out and spend on a on a big European player, and then there's like a quote from from Axel Schuster of the Whitecaps being like, "I don't think we need this yet. No, I think we're good." <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it's like, well, we know we're not playing in those waters, so let's uh, <laughs> let's keep the quality gap to as close as we uh, yeah. as close as we can for now. Uh, we'll see what happens, but uh, it is a possibility. Uh, Whitecaps. Uh, playing play pretty well, and uh, they'll play Tigris on Friday at BC Place. Uh, coming up, we'll get into the NFL. Uh, we've got a, uh, a learn. Well, we learned who's going to be on uh, season two of quarterback. Yes, one name anyway so far. And also, uh, Jonathan Taylor is the latest running back to go into a dispute with his team. We'll get into that as well. It is the People's Show on Sportsnet 650. People show continues here in the Kintec studio. Uh, coming up, we're going to play Puck Doku. Could get to it at uh, one forty-five. If not, it'll uh, get pushed into the uh, 2 o'clock hour, final hour of the show, where uh, Marcus and I will uh, discuss... How much we enjoyed Oppenheimer and Barbie over the weekend. Yes, you saw one, I saw the other. You went full Barbie, and I did the Oppenheimer experience. Yeah, I did. I did go full Barbie. A couple of a uh, couple of fun stories coming out of that, but uh, we'll get to that. We will try try to do our no spoiler reviews, <laughs> if you will, because we understand. Yeah, I know it's a weekend, but there's still a lot of people who haven't seen these things yet. So we're not going to ruin it for you, but uh, I'll tell you about it. Contrary to what Dennis Green would say, uh, Barbie was not what I thought it was. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you had fun though, right? Like I did, I did. Yeah, you went in there with an open mind. Like you know what? This would just be fun for a couple hours. Um, it, it was it was quite enjoyable actually. But uh, we'll get to it coming up a little bit later on in the program. So the big story right now in the NFL: Jonathan Taylor, the latest running back to start a dispute with his team. Now, Jonathan Taylor, one of the best runners in the league. Uh, coming off a bit of a tough year last year, ruined my fantasy team, but uh, not but he, that I've remembered all that much. Not at all, although he, <laughs> he he won some some fantasy leagues two years ago. Yes, but not last year. And now he's uh, trying to get paid with the Colts, and the Colts are just like pretty much every other NFL team and being like, eh, you know what? I, I, I think we're fine. Just stand on your rookie contract. And Taylor's not too happy about that, and it's escalated to a point where uh, a story came out yesterday that said uh, Jonathan Taylor suffered a, a back injury in some form of you know not playing football and might be placed on the NFI list, and so his contract could be told to the following year. I mean, it's getting pretty messy with the Colts and Jonathan Taylor right now, Marcus. Yeah, it is, and and the quote. Uh, that Jim Irsay had. And Jim Irsay, I, I think you could make him a first ballot uh, Kendall Roy fail son team owner. You could put him right up there with James Dolan. You can uh, put him up there with probably the Steinbrenner children in New York. But uh, Jim Irsay said over the weekend, if I die tonight and Jonathan Taylor is out of the league, no one's going to miss us. Wow, okay. <laughs> All right. Jim. Is that a real quote? Yes, it is. That's a real quote. Sometimes I wonder with these things because, like, you know, people put out those fake quotes from people and it's like, kind of believable, yeah. but. It's like, pretty sure Martin Luther King didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those where I'm like, this could be a joke, but I, I, I could also very well see Jim Ursay saying something as stupid as this. Yeah, it's it's kind of on par. And, and really, the Colts are at a, at a stage where they've got. Uh, the new head coach, Jonathan Gannon, the ex-defensive coordinator for Philadelphia, coming off a Super Bowl appearance. They got the new quarterback, the fourth overall pick, Anthony Richardson. You've got Jonathan Taylor, who two years ago was dynamite, and now he's looking to bounce back, and now they have this. Now, 
Saquon Barkley last week because we were talking about this. There's a whole group of running backs uh, who are lamenting the the death of the position, the slow death of the position. Saquon Barkley signs a one-year deal on the tag for $11 million. Jonathan Taylor probably doesn't want to do that, and yet that's what's kind of staring him in the face, and that's kind of what's staring every running back in the face who is not Christian McCaffrey yeah. at this point, and that's where it really gets kind of sticky. But it always seems like the Colts have these messes. It never seems stable in Indianapolis. There's always something coming out of the offseason, and Jim Irsay is usually behind it. Now, Jonathan Taylor is one of their best players. There's no doubt about that. Like, in terms of just talent on the field, Jonathan Taylor is one of their best guys. Why wouldn't you just view it through that lens? Can't we just pay Jonathan Taylor as one of our best guys? We could put him in any spot, any scenario. I'm not saying that he's Debo Samuel or anything like that, but he is one of the best players you got, and he can help out Anthony Richardson when Richardson inevitably uh, runs the offense. Why wouldn't you take care of that guy at a reasonable number? Doesn't seem that difficult to me, but I guess we're just at a point now in the NFL. We're almost like if you sign the running back to a big contract, you're going to get side-eyed by every other owner in the league. Like, why did you do that? Yes. Because now I have to pay my guy. Um, it, it could be a problem. Now, if, I, if I'm the Colts here, look, and I, I get it, running backs shouldn't get paid, but your point to me is salient to a certain extent. If the Colts aren't giving the ball to Jonathan Taylor, who are they giving the ball to? Michael Pittman? <laughs> Alec Pierce? Josh Downs? Wow. Great skill position players you're putting around your fourth overall pick, Anthony Richardson. Good luck, Anthony. Um, this is a problem, I would say, for the Indianapolis Colts going into this season. Now, sure, maybe they'll just throw Gardner Minshew out there for the first number of games and see what happens until, until they want to hand it over to Anthony Richardson. But I, look, if you want to support your quarterback, you give him skill position players that can help him have success. And Jonathan Taylor right now is the Colts' best option at that. But that's not the conversation in the NFL, the conversation in the NFL is we don't need to pay running backs. We draft running backs. We might even draft a running back in the first round. We'll run them through their rookie contracts. If they're still good at that point, we'll slap the franchise tag on them. We get all of the best years out of that player without ever having to commit long-term guaranteed money to them because we know there's an expiry date. There's a best before date on that player and it generally is right around the time the rookie contract comes to a close. And and here is the the issue with even just negotiating with running backs and the way that owners probably look at this. Two years ago, when Jonathan Taylor won everyone's fantasy league, 1,800 yards, 18 touchdowns, 332 touches. That's a lot. Now, Jonathan Taylor could go in and say, well, you know, two years ago I did all this, 18 touchdowns, 300-plus carries. And then ownership in the front office says, well, you know, you carried the ball over 300 times. Yes. You're wearing down. Like, your best attributes as just a negotiator are immediately just cut down by ownership in the front office. So that's that's one thing that where I, I really feel for the running backs because it's like you can play your ass off, but they'll go in there and they'll have it thrown right back in their face. Like, no, this means that you're wearing down. It doesn't mean that you're great. It means that you're wearing down. That's the issue. That's yeah. the problem. We were great for you then, but we need to pay for your future performance, not yes. your past performance. That's the problem with this whole conversation is like the owners and the teams, they're not really wrong. You know, they're, they're handling the situation that is probably the best way to handle it. It just really sucks for running backs. Yes, it does. And even in the Super Bowl last year, Isaiah Pacheco is a seventh-round pick. The Eagles have still have, going into this year, a, a running back room by committee where Rashad Penny's in there and DeAndre Swift's in there and Kenny Gainwell's in there. None of them are making big money, but if you just hand them the ball behind the line, we'll, we'll just replace everything in the aggregate. The other side of this, Dan, for the Colts as well, the division that they're playing in, the AFC South coming into this year, yeah, Anthony Richardson is is a rookie quarterback, but the Houston Texans also have – C.J. Stroud, a rookie quarterback. Tennessee, nobody really knows who the quarterback is. It's Derrick Henry and a bunch of other guys. Jacksonville is one Trevor Lawrence injury away from maybe not winning the AFC South, as we all assume. So if you're Indianapolis, and the goal is always to win and not to tank for these sports organizations, the goal rarely is to tank, especially in the NFL. If you're the Indianapolis Colts, Anthony Richardson is clearly, and he has been so far, 
he has shown to be. Like he's he he, he has the stuff. So mm-hmm. if he has the stuff, and you have Jonathan Taylor in there in a division that is wide open, again, you're you're a you're a you're a sprained Trevor Lawrence ankle away from maybe going nine and nine and eight or something like that and winning the division. I, I think ten and seven, nine and eight can get it done if you have Jonathan Taylor in your backfield. Wouldn't you give yourselves a much better opportunity to you, be that team? You don't trust the Titans. I I don't like Ryan Tant. Like, listen, here's who I do trust. Okay, I trust Mike Vrabel. Um, I, Sometimes that's I, all it takes in the NFL. I, I ride with Mike Vrabel. He's a great coach. Derek Henry's still there. Yeah, but who's the quarterback though? <laughs> Ryan Tannehill. It's not going to be Malik Willis, and it no, and it might not be. And you know what? This this Will Levis kid uh, is probably not ready yet. I'm just going to openly say that he's probably not. Um, I just I, I I don't know who the quarterback's going to be, uh, but I do trust Mike Vrabel though. Mike Vrabel could probably take us <laughs> and and coach us to at least eight wins. Vrabel is the one Belichick disciple that seems to have turned out pretty well. Yeah, the Be- I've I've thought about this a little bit. Like the Belichick tree isn't that fruitful. Oh, it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> and you and you know what the you issue think of is? Josh McDaniels, Matt Patricia, like those are yeah. just two recent names. Yeah, Eric Mangini. Yeah. Oh man, Eric Jim, Jim Schwartz. Yeah. And the problem well the problem the problem with that is is these guys all try to be Bill and they all try to carry themselves like Bill and do the things like the way that he did them. Problem is there's only one Bill. <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm trying to be Bill Belichick. Well, okay, where's your five Super Bowl rings? Yeah. <laughs> well then you can't act like that, can yeah. you? Yeah. Uh Bill Belichick, still still one of the best. But that's kind of what it comes down to in the NFL is building a program as a coach and you know, the best coaches in the leagues have their program. They stick to it, and you know they never really seem to fall below five hundred. Yeah, <laughs> like Mike Tomlin and Pittsburgh, and even the Seahawks with some pretty crappy rosters the last couple of years still sort of competed well and played pretty well. And now they're on the other side and looking like they could be a contender in the NFC West again. That's yeah, that's right. Essentially, I mean, the NFL where you know coaches matter uh, more than maybe any other sport, but. There's a trade request in here from Jonathan Taylor, and it's great. Like, okay, you want the money, fun. Um, nobody seems to be willing to give you the money. So on the flip side of that, you make a trade request as a running back. Who's trading for you? Yeah. So. That's like running backs, they have zero leverage. And no matter what they do on the field, they gain zero leverage. Because even at this point – Teams have figured out in the analytical age, and Chris Collinsworth is to thank with all the PFF numbers that have impacted the way NFL teams operate. We've also come to realize, like, you might be a great running back. You might be able to break enough tackles that you can have a decent floor as a player. But our best bet of getting great production out of a running back is to build out a strong offensive line. And there's nothing... Any talented running back can do to change that. It matters more about the offensive line and the environment than it does about the player itself. That's one of the analytical twists that's thrown into this. So if you're asking for a trade as Jonathan Taylor, well, ask yourself, John, who's out there? That's saying we're going to give up draft capital and then sign you to that extension you so desire when literally nobody in the NFL is showing any kind of appetite to do this for a running back player. And not only is nobody showing the appetite, but you would assume that Jonathan Taylor, uh, if he's not going to play in Indianapolis, would want to play for a contender. But you go down the list. San Francisco, doesn't matter. Kyle Shanahan, you put a fire hydrant back there, they're great. Also, they have Christian McCaffrey. Philadelphia, running back by committee, best offensive line in the NFL. They're good. Buffalo, yeah, they're probably set. Cincinnati, Joe Mixon's back there already. If you're Jonathan Taylor, where are you going? Where are you going to to find success? Would would you like if let's just say that the market on running backs wasn't soured and Jonathan Taylor was uh uh, an asset that most of the league would prefer to have in their backfield at a reasonable number. I, I, I don't know too many teams that are on the verge or maybe one or two pieces away that would just make that deal. Maybe, maybe Miami, maybe this is a thing where Jonathan Taylor doesn't get what he wants and the Colts just decide, all right, you know what, screw it, get out of here. And maybe that's the Belichick move. Yeah. You know, where Bill Belichick swoops in, oh, you know what, well, we like this guy, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, we're, we're just going to pick him up for a song and 
turn him into a rushing champion. That's something that Bill would do. But I just I, I don't know what the answer is for Jonathan Taylor at this point. And I don't think he does either. He's well, just been pushed to the he's been pushed to the edge. If he gets that trade, is anybody out there really all that willing to And you'd have to give him, him that contract. Yeah. Right? So Hey, we'll trade for you. We'll give you the tech. No, I don't want the tech. No, we'll give you the tech. <laughs> that's that's it. <laughs> that's what you get. That's, that's all we're giving you. We're yeah. giving you the tag and that's that's pretty much it. So tough one. Uh, on on Jonathan Taylor and uh, the Indianapolis Colts. That's uh, the biggest story around football right now. And also, by the way, uh, Zach Moss, who is Taylor's best backup in Indianapolis, went down with an injury today, a broken arm. So, uh, you know, (laughs) Colts have more questions than answers right now as they get closer to the start of the NFL preseason. Uh, We have a development in the... um, the rivalry we didn't know we need starting in this NFL training camp season. Aaron Rodgers has uh, fought back against Sean Payton's um, negative comments about Nathaniel Hackett, the ex-Broncos head coach. And uh, Aaron Rodgers quoted today, Yeah, I love Nathaniel Hackett. Those comments were very surprising. For a coach to do that to another coach, I thought it was way out of line, inappropriate, and I think he needs to keep my coach's name out of his mouth. It's from Aaron Rodgers to Sean Payton. Sean Payton also walked back some of his... Uh, yeah, a day later, which is lame. Come on. Nathaniel just, just lean Hackett into it. era Just lean Broncos. into it. Please lean into it. We need more coach beefs. They're fun. It's fun. <laughs> Plus, Sean Payton is, you know, a fairly gregarious guy. He's smart. He's been around. He worked for Fox last year. He's been in the media. He knows the game. Yeah. Don't walk it back. I know. Come don't on. walk it back. Please don't walk it back. This is this is the thing that we need, okay? It's it's the dead of summer. It's July the thirty first, Sean. This we, is what we need. We need to more fuel the show. Honest moments from people in professional sports. And it's not like this was a surprise. Like, yeah, Nathaniel Hackett stunk in Denver last year. The the second home game, the, the crowd was counting down the play clock so they could <laughs> hike the ball in time. I remember that happened. I texted our guy Bick Nazar because I just I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fathom that yeah. it was happening in the moment. And it just got crazier and crazier every week to the point where Nathaniel Hackett hired a guy literally to manage the clock. I don't know if I've ever seen a coach look so out of his depth as quickly as Nathaniel Hackett did with the Denver Broncos. Although, when Joe Philbin was hired by the Dolphins and they were on hard knocks, I was like, man, this guy stinks. You could tell right away. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to suck. That was when I was a Dolphins fan. And uh, I was right. Joe Philbin sucked. Uh, so, Nathaniel Hackett, same vibes. I kind of love that there is this storyline. Like, I don't know. Why else would I care all that much about a Broncos versus New York Jets game in week four? But all of a sudden, you know, that's going to be a fun game to watch. Yeah. Aaron throws a couple of touchdown passes, makes a couple of gestures towards the sideline. Yep. That's for Nat Hackett. And also we get the Jets on on hard knocks. So we can see this entire thing play out. Maybe, okay, maybe, maybe the HBO producers or Aaron Rodgers even went to Sean Payton. They're like, hey, look. We got to drum up some interest here. The Jets don't even want us here. We got we got to come up with like a B subplot, okay? And that's what happened. Maybe maybe one of them went to Sean. Sean, we just need you to say something, okay? Just WWE it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's all part of the game. Why walk it back? I lose so much respect once you walk it back. Um, but and maybe he lost some of that respect with his players. You know, Sean Payton sounded like a team guy. You know, like. I know a lot of these players were put in a bad situation. It's essentially what he was saying when yeah. uh, he ripped into Nathaniel Hackett last year. Some things went on that are not going to go on while I'm here. And now he's just all of a sudden walked it back because there's too much media discourse after you said it. Give me a break. <laughs> get out of town with And that. also, it's like, no. You got enough to worry about well, now figuring out if you're going to be able to get the best out of Russell Wilson. Go figure that out rather than walking your – very correct statements back which, on which, Nathaniel Hackett. Which, can he? Because, look, Sean Payton won a Super Bowl. He worked with Drew Brees forever. Like, he, uh, he's kind of a quarterback whisperer, but can he get anything out of Russell Wilson at this point? Have we seen the last of Russell Wilson? Was that last year not a blip? I, this might be the reality. So my, uh, my thoughts on Russell Wilson, he's a loser. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. He's um, a goober. As... as uh, 
He's just a very unlikable person. That's right. Exactly. The way that he Broncos is. Broncos country. That's what I mean by it. That's right. Um, now, he did bring a uh, you know, Super Bowl to Seattle. But the way his last couple of years played out and way the way the season played out last year, I just have serious doubts about what you're able to get out of Russell Wilson. Like, he can't scramble out of the pocket as much as he could or as quickly as he could when he was younger and quicker. And he's always had the issue of being able to see over the off, over the line of scrimmage. Yeah. So he can't make passes over the middle of the field or has long struggled to. And that's why you see a lot of the deep balls. That's why you see a lot of the dump-offs to the running backs and things of that nature that have been a staple of Russell Wilson's career. So I'm just really curious as to how Sean Payton's going to get the most out of Russell Wilson, even with all of the... Uh, you know, the valuable pieces they have around him. It seems as though they're going to commit to a power run game, which is exactly what Russell Wilson wanted to get away from because he had so (laughs) much belief in his own abilities that he needed to get away from Pete Carroll and the Seahawks offense in order to truly contend for an MVP title. Well, good luck for that. Uh, You've now got a new coach, one of the great offensive minds, who's like, hmm, you know what, we're probably going to need to put a power run game around you and focus a lot on play action in order for you to have success, Russ, which is essentially what they did with the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, and, an- and another aspect of Sean Payton saying what he said was it's, it's almost like he's setting himself up. Like if the Broncos go in there and they finish, um, you know, 6-11 and 11 or something like that, then Sean Payton can say, well, you know, nobody said we were going to go to the playoffs right away. I said it was a mess last year. It was going to take some time. I feel like he's kind of setting himself up as well. Just in case things go sideways, maybe Sean's been out of the game for too long, things don't go as well, he doesn't remember things quite the same way, because that's happened too. Uh, we've seen coaches that uh, are away for a while. I'm not saying that Sean Payton is Joe Gibbs yeah. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but that that could be the case. There there could be uh, a bit of a curve there uh, for Denver. And, and obviously the, the only way for Denver to go is up because last year was such a disaster, but... I, I think in terms of just preseason projections, I know Sean Payton's there. I know that's exciting. I know that's the guy you would want in there after what we saw a year ago, but maybe just temper that a little bit. And maybe that was just the way of Sean trying to control that himself, even though, again, like we said, don't walk it back. Lean into it. Have fun. Uh, this text, uh, Russell Wilson was washed up in Seattle. He is not improved. He was washed up the last three seasons there as far as I'm concerned. I don't think he's going to get any better because he's lost his mobility. And uh, another text comes in. He brought one ring, not two, because he was an awful game manager. Second and dumb is the hashtag on that one. That's a new one, second and dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't heard that one before. Was it on second and goal? Uh, I think it was. It was second and goal. All right, okay. That's a new one. I like that. Um, And uh, I guess we later learned it was an audible that uh, had Russ throw in the ball. Yeah, the, on that play. the conspiracy was you have Russ throw the ball, and then he's the hero. Yes. It's about Russ. <laughs> it's about Russ. It's got to be about Russ. Um, so we've pretty much seen all of the uh, the throwbacks come out yes. for the NFL. Yeah, 11 of them have, Wh- have come out to this point. Which is your favorite, and why is it the Seahawks? <laughs> no, look, the Seahawks' uh, throwbacks are immaculate. They are immaculate. They now, are gorgeous. What disappoints me is that you have these teams bringing up these throwbacks, and for us of a certain age, I'm going to be 37. I think you're around the same age yep. I am. So we kind of grew up in the 90s. You remember these uniforms, uh, the Eagles with their Kelly Greens. You've got the Vikings uh, with the throwbacks that look really nice. The Bucks are bringing back the uh, the creamsicle unicorns. Uh, I almost said unicorns. Uniforms. Um, why only wear them for two games? That's That's kind of a bummer, isn't it? Now, I understand there's rules in place. How many times you can wear an alternate uniform? I understand. Yep, yep. Teams have their, you know, their first, you know, their top flight unis that they have to wear. But all this fanfare for two games. Like, I I assume it's worth it. And they, I know what they got to do what uh, Jordan and Nike did back in the 80s, man. Just, like, do it. Wear them anyways and incur the fines. Yes. You know? Yeah, there has to be some <laughs> renegade team. In the National Football League. Got to say it like Mike Mayock, but. I you know what no but I, I I saw the Denver ones the white helmet is interesting because that's a great logo with the old right right the big capital the, D and the horse coming the out that's early cool. John Elway days yeah yeah but it's a white helmet not a blue helmet it's different um but yes the Seahawks ones are fantastic aren't you an Eagles fan yeah they are you don't I like am. the but you know what, what do they call it Kelly Green Kelly Greens yeah but the Kelly Greens were before my time as a fan 
Right. I got on board about so it's 2000. Too throwback. Yeah, a little too throwback for me. Like I, I, I get it. I get the passion. There was a lot of pa- people were tailgating outside the team store, by the way, to buy the gear. <laughs> Only in Philly. You want to talk about a sports town and sports fans? That's that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I, I wasn't a fan at that time, so I'm not as ing- it's, it's not like when the Canucks bring out the black skate, right? And I go back to when I was six, and Dad took me to games at the Coliseum, that kind of thing. Uh, but no, the Kelly Greens are fantastic. Uh, the Seahawks ones are fantastic. Uh, also, they're wearing it in a game against the Browns, like not not a division rival. You know what I mean? Why is everybody wearing their their <laughs> like, throwback against the Browns? Like, like, like even even the Seahawks are wearing the throwback against the Browns in Week Eight. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. Seahawks and Browns. The Eagles are going to wear their uniforms against the Bills and the Dolphins in a, ah. in a Sunday night game in Week Seven. It's like, why are you wearing them against the Cowboys? What am I missing? Yeah, wear it against the Cowboys. They play the Giants on Christmas. Why why are we doing that? Although I guess. You know, the idea is you want to have them wear the uniforms before Christmas so people go out and buy them yeah. as gifts for Christmas. So there's that, too. A reason I like the uh, the Buccaneers creamsicle jersey, it's uh, the great Vinny Testaverde that wore that jersey. <laughs> right. Not Steve Young? No, not Steve Young. No. <laughs> Who my, else? My cousin Vinny. Heath Schuler. No, no, he wasn't. He was Young Warren Sapp. <laughs> Trent Dilfer. That's, that's my memory. You know, the funny thing is, when that uh, Super Bowl team was being constructed and built, John Lynch wore the creamsicle. Oh, did he? Warren Sapp wore the creamsicle That's at one right. point. Derek Brooks wore the creamsicle, and then they went to the the pewter, <laughs> not not the, red pewter. The new age, yeah. uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's right. Houston Oilers. Uh, that one looks pretty. Those good are too. sweet. Those uh, are but sweet. it's the Tennessee Titans wearing the Houston Oiler, I know, uh, the old Houston we, Oiler jerseys. Because that, that, that's kind of weird. Because like, well, can't we ask the Texans to wear the, <laughs> the Oilers? Wouldn't the people in Houston enjoy that? Well, but, didn't the Titans wear the same uniforms when they first went there, coming from Houston? They did, yes. So they're technically wearing an old Tennessee jersey. Yeah, they, they were they were the Tennessee Oilers for like two years before the full right. rebrand and, and became the Titans and developed the flaming thumbtack logo, which uh, somehow still persists today. A lot of good throwbacks, actually, in uh, in the NFL. Uh, and uh, those are some of the best ones, uh, including the Seahawks, which is definitely the best. It's uh, Dan Richo, Marcus Fitzgerald. Final hour of The People's Show coming up next on Sports at 650.